Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11 says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hecaliah, in the month of Chisla, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before God of heaven. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing your confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At this time, I was cupbearer of the king. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Good job, Katie. A couple of tough names in there as uh, we read Nehemiah. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I love the book of Nehemiah. It's one of my favorites. A uh, great book. Um, it has uh, 13 chapters in it. It's not that long. And I would encourage you this week, if you have a chance, to read the whole book of Nehemiah. In one sitting, if you have the time, it shouldn't take too long, but if, if that's a little too much for you in one sitting, just break it out a couple of chapters a day. By the end of the week, you'll be able to read all of Nehemiah. But we're going to be hanging out in Nehemiah over the next four weeks as we look at what this word has for us uh, in our time right now. Now, as you read Nehemiah, you'll notice towards the end it gets a little weird. We're going to talk about that in four weeks, so we'll, we'll go over that here in a minute. But uh, Nehemiah is a great story of faith, a great story of, of covenant and, and vision. And it's an incredible reminder that when God moves, when God moves, it's time to get in the game. It's time to play, that we have all been called to play. Yeah, these past four or five months as we've been living through kind of a pandemic and, and a lot of that time we've been kind of holding back trying to figure out what is God calling us to do where are we going and there's a lot of change and upheaval uh, it can be disorienting at times it can be a struggle at times uh, but I believe that God is calling us the, the church the collective church not just First Methodist Church, Canyon, Texas, but the church around the world, that it's time for us, it's past time for us to get into the game, to start to play. We, we aren't called to sit on the bench. He, now, there's a season when we're called to prepare. There's seasons in our life when we're going through healing or grieving or learning. But we are called ultimately 
to play, to get into the game. So as we look at Nehemiah, we're going to see his story and how it interacts with who we are and how we as the church are called to get into the game. But before we uh, kind of move forward in Nehemiah, let me give you a little context for the book, a little background history. In, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. And the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they're right next to each other in the Old Testament, they're all written around the same time uh, and, and tell uh, similar stories of what's taking place in the lives of the Israelites during this time. And it's during this period of time that the people of God are in exile in Babylon. God had warned them, remember, uh, for many generations that this was coming if they weren't going to be faithful, that they were going to go into exile, that they would be destroyed as a people. And then in the year 587 BC, that's when it happened. That's when the unthinkable happened. Uh, when the Babylonians came and they took the people into exile, they destroyed uh, the nation of Judah. They destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, uh, and their lives were in shambles. Their lives, actually, at the moment, if you can imagine, it seemed hopeless and they seemed lost. All that, all that was their security was taken away from them. You know, it, it's hard for us, I think, as Americans, most of us are Americans, some of us might not be, but it's hard for us to imagine that type of devastation and destruction and the loss that the people of God experienced in this time, that, that depth of hopelessness and despair. But we actually have, uh, there's a psalm, I want to read uh, Psalm 137. It's one of those psalms we don't read very often because this psalm comes from the depth of despair. And this psalm was written during this time. It's a psalm of lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, just, just listen to these words. By the rivers of Babylon, they've been taken from Israel to Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept. When we remembered Zion, that's Jerusalem. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. For there our captors ask us for songs and our tormentors ask for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Apparently, the Israelites were known for their singing, for their music, for making music to God. And it goes on and says, how could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joys, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. The Edomites were their cousins, actually, that didn't help them during the exile. It says, remember on the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Yeah, that's, that's not an uplifting psalm, is it, at all? But that's how the people felt. That's what the nation was experiencing. This sense of wanting vengeance. This sense of wanting destruction for their enemies. We all feel that way at times. Life sometimes devastates us and, and that naturally comes bubbling out of us. Uh, you know, some people don't like this psalm. I like it because it just reminds us that in life sometimes there is destruction. Sometimes there is things that don't go our ways. But here we see... These people are without a home, without a, a purpose. They feel like God has abandoned them. 
can you imagine? It, it would be like Iraq or Iran right now coming and taking over our nation, destroying our cities, our capital, and then putting us in ships and taking us back to the Middle East for us to be slaves, not knowing the language, the culture. It would be just like that, being servants, foreigners in a foreign land. That's what the people were living under in exile. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther give us a glimpse into that life that they're living into in that period. But here's the thing also about those three books. They're also books of hope. Even in the midst of the darkest days in life, there's always hope. And that's the thread that runs throughout this book. From Genesis to Revelation, no matter how dark the days, there's always hope. No matter what's going on, there's always hope. And that's what I want us to remember as we read Nehemiah. But there, there are three things, three kind of renovations that are taking place through the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther as, as they kind of get to the end of that exile as Jerusalem is, is starting to be repopulated. And, and here they are. The first one is in Ezra, we read of the reconstruction of the temple and the celebration of Passover. They hadn't celebrated Passover in in, in many years, in many decades. And so we read that in Ezra. And then in both in Ezra and Nehemiah, the law of God is read. And the people hear it probably for the first time in many years. And it's reinstituted. And then in Nehemiah, the book that we're looking at, it's the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the beginning of the repopulation of Jerusalem as the people come back from exile. So that's a little bit of our background in Nehemiah. So we'll turn back to the book itself. And we find on the opening pages of Nehemiah it, that part of the Israelites that are, are exiled and that Nehemiah, he is at the fortress of Susa, which is in present-day Iran. And his, Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, comes to visit along with some other men. And so they're kind of catching up, seeing how things are back in the homeland, back in Jerusalem. And, and, and he asks how things are going. Uh, what's the capital city like these days? How are the people getting along there in Jerusalem? And Hanani's report is not good. He tells Nehemiah that the people there are suffering greatly. That there's not a lot of food. There's not a lot to do. That even though some of the Israelites have been allowed to go back to the city that it is almost completely destroyed, that the wall around Jerusalem, this protective wall, is still destroyed, and, and the rocks uh, and the stones are all around, that the gates have been burned and destroyed. And here's Nehemiah's response. I love his response. He says this, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. That was Nehemiah's response to hearing what was taking place in Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah had hoped that things were beginning to, to be better. He had hoped that as the people were starting to go back to Jerusalem, that things were getting better, that things were on the up and up, that there were some building projects going on, but they were actually worse. And then we have recorded part of Nehemiah's prayer to God. And I love his prayer. I like what he says. There's, there's an important element of it that we need to understand. And Nehemiah starts out by acknowledging that God is faithful to his covenant of unfailing love. Now, this is important. They've still been in exile. And imagine this. It's, it's a difficult time that you're living in, but acknowledging that God is faithful, right? Sometimes we don't do that when things are difficult. We think God is unfaithful. We like to blame God for things that get bad in our lives. 
But in spite of the circumstances that are going on around him, and in spite of everything that seems contrary to this, he acknowledges that God is faithful to his covenant promises. And then second, he confesses that he has sinned against God and that all the nation of Israel has done the same. This is important. Nehemiah understands the reason why they're in exile is because they have been unfaithful, because they have sinned. It's not because of God. He understands their position. He doesn't blame God. And after confessing not only his sins, but the sins of the whole nation, it says he asked for success in his vision, for the renewal of Jerusalem, and, and asked that the king would look with favor upon him. Because we find out that Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. Now, we don't have cupbearers anymore, not really in our nation, but what was a cupbearer? A cupbearer, their job was to taste the wine or any drink that the king would be drinking to make sure that they wouldn't be poisoned. So that's the job you would drink. If you didn't die, then the king would drink out of it. Uh, but they also, the cupbearer's job was to kind of protect the royal chamber and make sure that the right people got in and out. So it was, a, it was an important position for the king. So we see here Nehemiah, this Israelite, had come to this servant position for the king. He was a trusted official. And so one day, because they, they have this kind of intimate relationship, the king and Nehemiah, the, the king notices that Nehemiah is, is a little bit down, a little dejected and distressed. And the king asks him what's going on. Now, you also have to remember, as the servant of the king, your feelings don't matter. You're having a bad day? Wah. Sorry. You know, you don't show that in front of the king because the king is the king. You just got to, you just got to suck it up. But the king notices that Nehemiah is, is having a bad day. And what is Nehemiah respond? It says this, then I was terrified. So you're wondering why he is terrified because, hey, you're the servant of the king. You're not supposed to show this emotion. You're supposed to just do your job, get it done. So he was terrified, but I replied, how long live the king? How can I not be sad? Whew. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. It's a pretty bold statement that he makes right there before the king. And the king replies, well, how can I help you? Whew. A little bit of favor going on right there. That's a good thing. And then Nehemiah, with, with a prayer to God, begins to outline his vision for what he needs. He's been thinking about this. And here's what he asked for. He, has, he says first, send me to Judah to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls. So Nehemiah is asking for a change of vocation. Would you take me from this spot as your cupbearer, send me back to Jerusalem so that I can rebuild the city? And then the second thing he asked, if you're going to ask, go big. Go big. And here he does. I, I want letters of assurance from you, king, so that as I'm traveling to Jerusalem, that if anyone comes upon me, I can show them your, your seal that says, hey, this one's under my protection. Don't mess with them. I want a letter of assurance, protection. And then third, would you go ahead and provide all the timber to rebuild the city and the walls and all that I need? And the king says, go for it. Sounds good which is pretty amazing in itself. And so we see that immediately it says Jeremiah, Nehemiah is off and he goes to his journey to Jerusalem. And so 
Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at the rest of that part of the story. And again, I encourage you to read in Nehemiah and, and get a, a better understanding of the story of Nehemiah. And, and you might be thinking to yourself, this is a great story. How does it apply to me? Uh, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Uh, this is how I think this story applies to us today. See, in Nehemiah's time, the people of Israel had been in exile for almost a, a century, for about 70 years. And, and I think most of them had grown accustomed to life in exile. Every day, get up in exile. They just thought that this was what their life was always going to be like. That they had grown content. They'd grown comfortable in their exile. They, they'd grown to a place where they looked with longing on the past and wished they could go back to the good old days but they really didn't do anything to help them for their future. They talked about the good old days, but they didn't see any way forward for a great future. They didn't want to admit, this is a hard one for all of us, they didn't want to admit that they're the reason they're in the shape they're in, right? They, would, they wanted to blame other people. God, it's your fault, right? Or it's, it's the fault of all these Babylonians. You know, the reason I'm 15 pounds overweight is not my fault. It's someone else's fault. It's that food they gave me. You know, it's, it's their fault. That's the way the Israelites live their life in exile. And how often do we do that in our own lives? Where we, we're quick to blame other people, but we're not quick to, to realize that, hey, I'm the problem. And, and, and that's what they lived day after day. They didn't want to admit that the reason they were in this mess was because of their own sin, their own stubbornness, their breaking of the covenant. God had warned them over and over and over again. Before they went into exile, they spent most of their time chasing after other gods and other pursuits six days a week and then going to the temple or the synagogue on the Sabbath day and then just going back and doing the same thing week after week. They spent most of their time fighting on Facebook, you know, and, and, and arguing with other people about how they're wrong and how they were right and how dare they. And they spent most of their time complaining and ignoring their call from God. What was their purpose as a people, the nation of Israel? They were blessed to be a blessing. That's, that's still our calling today. We are blessed to be a blessing. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't figure out what to do. Did any of that sound familiar to you now? I mean, we, we even see this in the church now. The church is fighting. We see the decline of, of the church in America, especially in the United Methodist Church, uh, with membership going down, attendance going down. In a sense, we, the church, has been in exile for almost half a century as we have forgotten our purpose, our calling, that we have been called to get into the game, that we are called to play, that We've become almost irrelevant in society nowadays. I can remember the good old days when pastors had respect. Not anymore. Those days are long gone. And, and, but we've become content, and a lot of times we become lazy. And I hear more people talk about the good old days when the church had influence, but we don't see where God is calling us for the future. And we are quick to blame other people's. It's the pastor's fault. It's a bishop's fault. It's culture's fault. It's fill in the blank. But the reason where the church is, is because of us, the church. We're quick to blame others. But I say, you know, 
It's time for us, the church, I believe, to get in the game, that we've got to quit making excuses, that we have been called to play, not to sit on the sidelines. We've been called to be a blessing for the world. No more dying church, no more exile, no more spending most of our time fighting each other, arguing with each each other. It's time to get in the game. And we've been content for too long to, to kind of sit in our easy chairs. And, but we have been called to play. And I think that's important. Too often we're like uh, the person in this video. Let's, let's watch. Jesus, I am so excited today. It's like I woke up and thought today is the day to get working for Jesus. Kat, I'm so excited to find someone who's ready to take action and get things done. Oh man, I am that girl. Exactly. Yeah. I've got something perfect for you. So let's get started. What are you doing? Uh, Stand up. Remember, we were going to take action. Yeah, but this is where I always sit. Right, but I need more than this. Oh, I know what you're getting at. Okay, Jesus, how much do you want? $50? Is that enough? Oh, uh, that's not what I meant. Oh, uh, all right. Well, a hundred then, you know. You drive a hard bargain. Uh, um, Okay, but um, you might not want to cash this till next Friday. You know what I'm saying? Right. There you go. Uh, Okay, Okay. Kat, really, I, I do think it's great that you want to give, but I want you to mentor a younger woman. Ooh, yeah, right. Well, Jesus, you know, I'm not really into, like, teaching people and stuff. I mean, I'm not, I don't really get into that. Okay, um, okay, you you know that woman at the office, Amy? Yeah. I want you to take her out to lunch. Tell her about me. Um, well, Amy is different. I mean, like, really different, you know? I know, but she needs to know about me. Mm, and I can tell the people at the church to call her. I mean, they get paid to do things like that. I want you to do that. Jesus, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. <laughs> no, Kat, the problem is you're too comfortable. <laughs> you know... It's funny because it's true so often in all of our lives. We get comfortable. We get content living in exile. We get content with the way life is around us. And we're quick to blame others, but we're slow to do anything about it for ourselves. But we have been called to play the game. We've been called to get in the game. We have been called as the church to be a blessing. Nehemiah knew the way forward, and he knew it was going to take work. He knew he would have to be bold. He knew he was going to have to take a risk. He was going to have to tell the king, and that's the calling that we have. But oh, what a blessing we can be when we do that. And Nehemiah was bold enough and brave enough to get in the game, and I think that provides us a way forward. And so as we look back at this text from Nehemiah chapter 1, as you go back and reread it this week, I want you to notice a couple of things. First, what did he do first? He, he wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed, he confessed, he, he repented. He said, God, I'm, I'm sorry for what we have done. 
not just me, but the nation. Forgive us. When's the last time you, you fasted for your church, for the kingdom? When's the last time you, you spent time in prayer and mourning for where we are? He said, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even in my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant, Moses. Second, he had vision. He knew what he was called to do. He was called to play. He, he realized he wasn't supposed to just sit on the sidelines. It could have been easy to say, hey, I'm just a servant of the king. This is my job. This is all I can do. I can just drink his wine and make sure he doesn't get poisoned. That's, that's, all I, that's all I can do. Imagine if he did that instead of taking that bold step with vision. And that's that third thing. He took action. He moved. He played. See, I believe as, as a church, especially in difficult times, it's in seasons of exile, it's in seasons of COVID, it's in seasons where people are beginning to ask the question, why am I here? <laughs> why am I wearing this mask? Where am I going? What's going on? What's my purpose? Is there a reason for this existence? That's when people need the church the most. That's when they need us the most to be a blessing to them so that they can find hope in the midst of their exile in the midst of their life. We are called to play. That's our calling. Let us pray. God, I, I, I thank you for, again, for this calling that you have given us. I thank you for this calling that's not easy, but it's good because you have blessed us to be a blessing. And when we take those risks, when we repent, when we have vision, when we move, you move. Actually, you moved before we do because you were the one who moved in the heart of the king before Nehemiah even spoke to him. You were already moving in the heart of the king. You were just waiting on Nehemiah to respond. And so God, as we go about our week, help us to know that you have already moved and you are calling us to respond. Come, Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.